I V M. October has been a restless month, both within India and on the world stage. From impeachment inquiries against Donald Trump to the Brexit negotiations in Britain and the European Union, and the relaxation of restrictions in Kashmir, which continue to be a subject of much debate. The world never rests and never will, and it is this dynamic nature of the world order that shapes our lives in ways we don't realize. Welcome to States of Anarchy. I'm your host Hamsani Hariharan, and every week I discuss global affairs and foreign policy with an expert. Usually on the last Tuesday of the month, I round up all the important international news. But you know how Diwali sweeps everything out of focus, na? So instead, we're beginning this new month of November by recapping all the various events that have taken place last month in October. As usual, I'll begin with updates from India, after which we'll move on to Asia and the rest of the world. Let's start with Jammu and Kashmir. Once a state and now divided into two union territories, this region has been in a state of lockdown since 5th of August. The union government abrogated the state's special status, effectively bringing all of its affairs under the purview of the central government. Indian media has largely been divided about how to cover the issue, especially in the early days. But you can't remain oblivious to the fact that the lives of the people living in the state of lockdown is filled with fear and worry and helplessness. The government spread the narrative that this decision was made for the betterment of the state and that its complete unification with the rest of the country would result in improved trade and development and also a significant decrease in terrorist and militant activities. Whether or not this is true will be revealed once the state is free of all the restrictions and people have the freedom to be able to either protest or celebrate these changes. Several observers have stated that the only result to come out of this will be an increased sense of antagonism against the central government, while others claim the opposite. October has seen several developments in Kashmir. After almost 72 days of restrictions being in place, the government relieved postpaid services under the state-run BSNL network. Internet and broadband services, however, continued to remain down. What was surprising was that right after BSNL was reinstated, SMS services were stopped, citing "quote-unquote precautionary measures." This came following an attack on a Rajasthan truck driver and the owner of an apple orchard in Shopian by two terrorists, one of whom is apparently a Pakistani national. Officials in the security establishment also said that a decision on easing restrictions on prepaid subscribers might only be taken next month. On 31st of October, the state was officially divided into two union territories, with lieutenant governors being appointed. Kashmir also witnessed the worst cross-border firing since the restrictions of 5th of August. India has said that cross-border shelling by Pakistan has killed two of its soldiers and one civilian, while the spokesperson for Pakistan has blamed India for violating the ceasefire, resulting in the death of one soldier and three civilians. The restrictions aside, a delegation of 27 European ministers were allowed to visit and were invited to assess the situation in Jammu and Kashmir. This decision has been heavily criticized by opposition leaders, who shun the hypocrisy of the government as they invite outsiders to the region but refuse to allow Indian ministers to leave Srinagar airport. What's interesting is that 22 of these 27 ministers form the right wing in their own governments in the UK, France, Italy, Germany, Poland among others. 
The minister said that they aim to understand the situation in Kashmir by seeing firsthand the situation on the ground and interacting with the people there. Now, I'm not sure about you, but where have you heard of conducted tours in the world by the government? China, North Korea? Well, that's because of a fundamental fact that our government seems to be forgetting. Democracies don't do conducted tours. Prime Minister Modi does want to seem to present a rosy picture to the rest of the world, regardless of what the internal reality of the situation may be. But this really urges me to ask, how does telling the US on one hand that this is an internal matter that India alone will deal with, and then inviting an entire European delegation to assess the situation, make any sense? But basically, for the first two days, the delegation was briefed on the security situation in Jammu and Kashmir before the abrogation of Article 370, and then using that as a basis to justify the act. Now, while they were told that more than 80% of restrictions had been removed, the situation on ground was quite the opposite. Students stayed away from schools, private and public transport on the streets was low, as they have been over the last three months, and shopkeepers refrained from opening their shutters, all in the hope that the delegation would see the plight of the people in the region. While the extent of information provided to the ministers was obviously limited to the government's narrative about security in the region, certain members, while acknowledging that this was an internal matter, said that if they were allowed to visit, then the country's own ministers of parliament should be too. Here's one important thing to note. This may be one way for the government to show that it's being transparent about the situation in Kashmir. But here's a detail that you may have missed out on. The Ministry of External Affairs rescinded the invitation that was extended to a minister from the United Kingdom called Chris Davies after he insisted on unsupervised meetings with the locals. In a statement to The Wire, he said, and I quote, I only heard today that Indian MPs are not being allowed to visit Kashmir. If this is the case, it is an outrageous affront to democracy and I am deeply disappointed. India is a great country and we expect better from its government. End quote. That apart, the careful curation of the information revealed to the delegation shows that there's much that's being brushed under the carpet. The government must know that this manufactured narrative won't sell. Now the spotlight is on the organisers of the tour, who seem dodgy AF. Devi Rupa Mitra, who was on the show a couple of weeks ago, has a report about this in The Wire, which is highly illuminating, and it's linked in the episode description if you want to check it out. What makes for an interesting timing of events is that the formal division of the state of Jammu and Kashmir into two union territories was scheduled to take place on the 31st of October. The event was thought to be a low-key affair, but of course it can't be. Responding to a question about this, China's foreign ministry's Gang Shuang said that, and I quote, China deplores and firmly opposes this. India is challenging China's sovereign rights and interests by unilaterally revising domestic law and administrative division. This is illegal, null and void. It will neither change the fact that the relevant region is under China's actual control, nor produce any effect, end quote. In response, the Ministry of External Affairs' Ravish Kumar reiterated that India does not expect other countries, including China, to comment on matters that are internal to India. He also hit out at illegal Chinese and Pakistani occupation of Indian territories. Well, this back and forth is not going to stop anytime soon, even if it does seem to get sort of repetitive. Moving on from the situation in Kashmir to a military agreement with France that's been contentious for a few years now. 
Our Home Minister Rajnath Singh took delivery of the first of 36 Rafale fighters that India purchased from Dassault Aviation after an agreement was formalized in 2016. The handover took place on 8th of August, the day that the Indian Air Force celebrated its 87th founding day. Well, delivery was taken when Rajnath Singh travelled to France and specifically to the Dassault factory in Bordeaux. The first batch of jets will only be seen in Indian skies around May 2020. For those of you who need a refresher, let me catch you up with why this deal turned out to be so controversial. The UPA government had made a deal with Dassault Aviation in 2008 to acquire 126 Rafale fighters. However, a few days after Narendra Modi's first trip to France in 2015, the then defense minister Manohar Parrikar announced in parliament that the negotiations for the 126 fighters had been put to bed. The controversy arose when opposition leaders claimed that the NDA government was acquiring the jets at a much higher price than the one that was negotiated by the UPA government. They also stated that the deal benefits a certain private defense company in India and does not include a transfer of technology. In the older deal, 108 of the 126 aircrafts were supposed to be assembled by the Bangalore-based Hindustan Aeronautics Limited as compared to the current situation. The NDA government also refused to reveal the prices of the jets, citing security agreements signed between India and France in January 2008. So what all of this means is that we simply do not know what we've paid for or what the real costs are, what the figurative or the opportunity costs are. But the biggest foreign policy news this month is the visit of Chinese Premier Xi Jinping, who came to India for two days, after which he travelled to Nepal. He was received by Prime Minister Modi at Mamalapuram, where the two leaders held an informal summit that went on for about five hours. This meeting is meant to carry forward the momentum that was built by the first informal summit held in Wuhan in 2018, during which both leaders pledged to strengthen their relationship, work on solving border issues, and work on common areas of interest. In Mamalapuram, the two leaders discussed cultural ties between India and China and also laid emphasis on the need to cut terrorism in the region. They discussed trade-related issues and how to enhance the bilateral trade volume in light of the current trade deficit that India has. While both leaders said that the summit proved to be productive, it must be noted that the issue of Kashmir wasn't addressed even once. This was clearly a concentrated effort on India's behalf. On the other hand, China's response to the October 31st splitting up of Kashmir into two union territories that I mentioned earlier must prove that there's only so much that informal diplomacy can do. Following the two-day visit to India, Xi Jinping flew to Nepal, making him the first in several decades to do the trip. This has been seen as a diplomatic victory for China, given its efforts to broaden the scope of its Belt and Road Initiative. Xi Jinping signed 20 deals with Nepal that cover railways, ports and energy projects. But Xi isn't the only one conducting bilateral diplomacy. Prime Minister Modi visited Saudi Arabia on 28th of October and returned to India the next day. The spokesperson of the MEA, Ravish Kumar, was quoted saying that this visit marked an upswing in bilateral relations between the two countries. The Prime Minister held wide-ranging talks with the Saudi King, Salman bin Abdulaziz, and the Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salman, during which a strategic partnership council was established to coordinate on important issues. An MOU was also signed to introduce the use of the rupee card in the kingdom, making it the third country to adopt India's digital payment system. Modi also said that India would invest about $100 billion in oil and gas infrastructure to meet the demands of an economy that is targeted to double the use of its oil in the next five years. 
India's relations with Saudi Arabia have been on the upswing over the last couple of years because of the increasing trade of oil and gas. In fact, Saudi Arabia stands as India's fourth largest trading partner. Relations between the two countries have only been bolstered, given that this was only Modi's second trip to the kingdom, aside from the crown prince himself, who visited India in February 2019. During his first trip to Saudi Arabia, Modi was conferred the highest civilian award by King Salman. The two countries are only looking to deepen their trade ties after Saudi Arabia last month said it was looking at investing about $100 billion in India in areas of energy, refining, petrochemicals, infrastructure, agriculture, minerals and mining. Moving on to news from our neighbourhood. Back in July, the Financial Action Task Force, or the FATF, had told Pakistan that it had to curb the operation of banned terrorism outfits by October or be faced with blacklisting. This deadline came to an end last week, on 31st October. The FATF urged Pakistan to meet its action plan by February 2020. Until then, Pakistan will remain on its grey list. The FATF is a Paris-based organization that is set to curb money laundering and terror financing. And it noted that Pakistan had only completed 5 out of 27 tasks under the action plan, thus failing to end the funding to terror groups like the Lashkari Taiba and the Jaish e Mohammed, which were responsible for a series of terror attacks in India. These include, of course, the Pulwama attacks that took place in February 14th this year. Pakistan has also come under the limelight in a statement made by the President of the International Court of Justice at the UNGA. Judge Abdul Kavi Yusuf said that Pakistan's decision to inform India about the arrest of Kulbushan Yadav three weeks after it happened was a delay, according to Article 36 of the Vienna Convention. He said, and I quote, In line with its earlier jurisprudence in other cases dealing with breaches of the Vienna Convention, the court found that the appropriate remedy was effective review and reconsideration of the conviction and sentence of Mr. Yadav, end quote. Pakistan certainly seems to be at the receiving end of some serious flack. And if they are to ease their standing in the international arena, they'll need to abide by the norms laid out. Terrorism, of course, is a top priority, given that it's a global concern. The Pakistani Prime Minister, Imran Khan, also went on a two-day official visit to Beijing on October 8th, his third visit this year. He was accompanied by the army chief, General Bajwa, who actually arrived in China a day earlier than him. While Imran Khan met with high-level delegates and businessmen, the army chief met with top military officials to discuss the security situations and the recent tensions between India and Pakistan over Kashmir. It was also reported by a top-level diplomat that both Imran Khan and General Bajwa were trying to secure China's support on the Kashmir issue after other states refused to openly support Pakistan. What Pakistan also hoped to achieve was an increase in Chinese investment in the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, or CPEC. This is obviously critical for a state that's suffering from a weak economy. On the subject of Kashmir, Pakistan is reported to have briefed President Xi Jinping on the situation in Jammu and Kashmir, along with its position and its concerns. In his response, Premier Xi Jinping also said that China is closely monitoring the situation in Jammu and Kashmir and that China's relationship with Pakistan is unbreakable and rock-solid. Moving on to our neighbour in the south, Sri Lanka, which is set to head to its next presidential election on the 16th of November. Campaigns are running in full swing, and the various groups in the tiny island nation are bound and divided about who they support. There are two people you need to know. Gotabaya Rajapaksha of the Sri Lanka Podujana Paramuna and Sajit Premadasa of the United National Party, who are two out of the total 35 people who are contending for the position of head of state. 
Gotabaya Rajapaksha is the younger brother of the former president, Mahinda Rajapaksha. He and his brother were two people who fought against the LTTE to secure Sri Lanka's future. The Rajapaksha name, however, doesn't appeal to every group. To many, including to millions, Muslims and the Sinhalese, a Gotabaya presidency signals a return to an authoritarian regime with limited freedoms. While the Premadasa name has its own negative connotations, the term served by Sajid Premadasa himself is largely uncontroversial, since he's hardly spoken on national issues so far. How the elections play out and who forms the government will make for an interesting study mid-November, something you'll get a good sense of clarity on on the next month's roundup. Having spoken a fair bit about China, it's time we shift our focus to the communist regime for a bit. On the 1st of October, China celebrated its 70th founding day, with its parade at the Tiananmen Square displaying its military might to the rest of the world. However, while China was preparing for this and on the day itself, Hong Kong remained engulfed with protests for what was the 18th consecutive week of retaliation against Beijing's attempts to tighten its grip on the autonomous state. The result were some of the most violent protests since their beginning a few months ago, bringing certain parts of Hong Kong to a standstill. Bricks, tear gas and firebombs took over the streets as law enforcement and protesters clashed. Mid-October saw these protests resulting in Carrie Lam's official withdrawal of the extradition bill. In what was her annual address and the first time since the Legislative Council was stormed by protesters in July that sessions were resumed, pro-democracy lawmakers continued to interrupt her speech with banners that showed Carrie Lam with blood on her hands. Almost as if they were a part of a chorus, these lawmakers shouted, Five demands, not one less. Eventually, after having to leave the chambers, she gave her State of the Union speech via a video telecast and called for an end to the anti-government protests. While Carrie Lam addressed issues such as housing as being essential for the future of Hong Kong, she denied questions at a press conference held later that she ignored the demands of the protesters in her speech. What she did say, however, is that it was time to consider voting reform and that Hong Kong did have the freedom of speech and press without Chinese interference. These developments came just hours after the lower house in the United States passed the Human Rights and Democracy Act which mandated an annual review of whether or not Hong Kong had adequate autonomy from China to justify its special trading status. This is essential for Hong Kong because it ensures that Hong Kong remains unaffected by tariffs imported on the mainland. The lower house also approved stopping exports of tear gas to Hong Kong. As news of this reached the island, its people came out on the streets in support of the bill as it marked a wave of support for the maintenance of civil liberties in Hong Kong. After more than 20 weeks of protests, however, what's going to be left off the island, especially when a huge part of the workforce are out on the streets rather than at their offices? An economic crisis. Yes, Hong Kong is now facing a recession. Carrie Lam, while speaking to reporters, said that she expected Hong Kong to register negative growth for the full year of 2019. She went on to say that aside from taking economic measures, she would tackle the violence head on as the nature of the protests at this point were plain and simple anti-government. How she carries out this plan is yet to be seen. But from the looks of it, Hong Kong is going to be engulfed in a state of anarchy for a while longer. Hong Kong is not alone in being marred by protests and violence. Violence struck Afghanistan when more than 60 people died when a bomb blasted during Friday prayers at a mosque. This incident came a day after the UN's report that the period between July and September has been the worst quarter in terms of civilian deaths, which now number 1,174 deaths. 
while no group claimed responsibility for these blasts. The government has accused the Taliban insurgents, given that they're fighting to impose strict Islamic law after they were ousted in 2001 by U.S.-led forces. The timing of the attack makes it even more alarming, given the U.S. withdrawal from the state, which many say is going to help the Taliban. In another part of our extended neighborhood, the countries of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or the ASEAN, aside from six others, including India, have been setting up a pact called the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, or the RCEP. This is a trade agreement in which the associated countries agree on reducing or completely eliminating tariffs and non-tariff barriers on imports and exports. It's often characterized as the China-led response to the Trans-Pacific Partnership put forward by the US. India's manufacturing industries and farmers are keeping their fingers crossed, fearing that it shouldn't turn into a raw deal for them again. Their fears only justified given India's adverse experience in all free trade agreements so far. However, with India's growth having plummeted to a meagre 5%, the RCEP may be exactly what the economy needs. India's joining of the agreement, however, is being fiercely contested at home especially with RSS and the outfits which state that the agreement will lead to a significant number of Chinese imports into the country, slowing down its own growth. What India would need in such a situation is an auto-trigger mechanism, which comes into place when any specific import starts taking over its homogeneous versions. What India would need in such a situation is an auto-trigger mechanism, which comes into place when any specific import starts taking over its homegrown versions. Our Prime Minister is still in Bangkok as of November 4th, so the RCEP is one more story that we're going to have to revisit at the end of this month. The biggest story on the global stage this month, however, didn't happen in our neighbourhood. In the second week of October, Turkey launched an incursion into the Kurdish-held northeastern Syria, prompting stern condemnation from its Western allies. On 11th of October, both the European Union and the United States decided to sanction Ankara over the operation. Turkey's aim was twofold. The first was to push out a Kurdish group called the YPG, or the People's Protection Units, who established a semi-autonomous statelet bordering Turkey. And their aim was to push this group at least 30 kilometers away from the border. The second aim was to establish a so-called safe zone in parts of Syrian territory it seizes, to which it plans to return refugees. Turkey currently hosts about 3.5 million Syrian refugees, more than any other nation. And resentment towards them is on the rise among Turkish citizens. It's also worth noting that parts of the opposition and many Turks, not just supporters of President Erdogan, support the military operation. This is Turkey's third operation in Syria. Erdogan has long spoken about plans for a safe zone and driving away the YPG. Turkey considers the YPG, or the People's Protection Units, as an extension of the Kurdistan's Workers' Party, or the PKK, which has actually waged an insurgency against Turkey for the last 35 years. Why did Turkey go through with this now? Well, it goes back to President Donald Trump of the United States. President Trump had announced that American troops sanctioned in northeastern Syria would withdraw, and then there was nothing to stop Turkey's planned incursion. 
The Turkish invasion has brought much attention to NATO as well, with several analysts questioning whether NATO should consider removing Turkey from the alliance, given that both the EU and the US were against Ankara's actions. But actually, President Trump's response to the invasion has been self-contradictory. Initially, he made a statement basically saying that the US would not stand in the way of Turkey. Then he took a U-turn and threatened to destroy Turkey's economy if it didn't show restraint. He went on to say, and I quote, let them fight in northeastern Syria, and then eventually moved on to issue sanctions against Ankara. Now, I'm not going to try to make sense of Donald Trump's tweets, but let's move on to something that's just as fun. Brexit. Yes, that fiasco is still going on. And for those of you who thought that the whole thing would be put to bed with or without a deal by 31st October, you're out of luck. The European Council agreed to move the Brexit deadline from October 31st to January 31st, 2020. Boris Johnson of the Conservative Party failed to get the British Parliament to ratify the Brexit deal, but managed to push for a snap election on the 12th of December. A snap election, for those of you who don't know, is one that's just called before its scheduled time. This would be the fourth election that Britain is holding in a decade. Boris Johnson is hoping that a majority in the election will allow him to pass the deal through the Parliament by the January deadline. His prime opponent, Jeremy Corbyn, has positioned himself as a representative of the common man, working to bring down the powers of those with deep pockets who control the state's machinery and economy. He promised to rebuild public services and hit out at tax dodgers, dodgy landlords, bad bosses and big polluters. In a speech, Mr. Corbyn called the 12th December poll a once-in-a-generation chance to transform our country. But Prime Minister Boris Johnson has blamed Mr. Corbyn for the delay to Brexit. He said he was incredibly frustrated that the 31st October deadline had to be extended, but a Conservative election win would remove the lockjam. Both leaders and those of other parties are beginning six weeks of campaigning. The problems of elections are not limited to Britain alone. In South America, Bolivia too is faced with protests over what the voters of the country call a rigged election. Evo Morales, the president of Bolivia, claimed that he won a fourth consecutive term in the elections that took place on 20th October. But the opposition claims that the vote was marred by systematic fraud and they've taken to the streets to protest. The demonstrations have brought the country to a standstill. And what makes it worse is Morales' call out to his supporters to stifle the protests and block all access points to the city, bringing a halt to the transport of goods and people. This clash has already led to the death of two people and is only threatening to turn worse. Now, a team from the Organization of American States is conducting an international audit of the election records. But what is clear is that there is a lack of transparency in the legitimacy of the Bolivian government. Now, let's shift from South America to North America, where we can't help but ignore Donald Trump facing the heat from his impeachment inquiry. The Democrats are pushing the inquiry and focusing on whether he abused his powers in getting Ukraine to launch an investigation into his key political rival, Joe Biden. Democrats allege that Trump temporarily withheld $391 million in U.S. military assistance to Ukraine as a way to pressure the country into investigating Joe Biden. Trump allegedly recalled the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Mary Ivanovich, and personally pressured Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in a phone call to investigate Biden and his son over their prior roles as directors of a Ukrainian gas company. All of this came to light through a whistleblower complaint, and the U.S. House Intelligence Committee has released an unclassified version of the complaint. 
the White House refused to cooperate with what it calls an illegitimate, unconstitutional impeachment inquiry, telling the House Democrats that Trump and his administration cannot participate with the probe while fulfilling their duties to the American people, the Constitution, the executive branch, and all future occupants of the House of Presidency. In fact, a group of Republicans even stormed into a private inquiry hearing and said that such a discussion should be made available in a public forum, failing which they would continue to hinder the discussion. Things are certainly heating up. And with US presidential elections coming up, it's anyone's guess as to which camp the voters of the country are going to lay their trust in for the new term. While Trump has been facing all this flack, he seems to have taken a page out of the House of Cards. When you're trapped in a corner just before an election, capture and kill a terrorist. Jokes apart, whether or not the House of Cards could work as a user manual for the president, Trump did announce to the world on 30th of October that the US Special Forces had captured and killed Islamic State founder Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi in the Syrian province of Idlib. In what was a nighttime raid, the terrorist supposedly made his way to an underground tunnel network in an attempt to escape from the US Special Forces. But upon reaching a dead end, he detonated his suicide vest, killing himself and his three sons, who he had been using as human shields. The Pentagon went on to release videos and images of the event, even though most of it has been reduced to the ground. Now, the IS has acknowledged the death of its leader and also announced that it's appointed a new one. An outlet of the IS announced that Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Qurashi was the group's new leader and caliph. Hashimi's name is not known to security forces and is believed to be a pseudonym under which an individual fights in combat. This puts the ball in the US's court to gather all the intel they possibly can to learn more about the group's new leader and subsequently try to prevent an act of revenge. On the environment front, a state of emergency has been declared in California as wildfires continue to wreak havoc. About 180,000 people had been ordered to leave their homes and roads were packed as masses of people tried to flee. Tens of thousands of homes are under threat from the wildfires. The biggest blackouts in the state's history have already left a million people without electricity and power companies are trying to stop damaged cables from triggering new fires. What's worse is that another million people have been told that they could lose supplies. Moving on to North Earth and the US. Canada has witnessed its federal elections on 19th of October, with Justin Trudeau winning a second term as the country's prime minister. However, his narrow victory means that he'll be dependent on smaller left-of-centre parties to govern. This year, the vote share of Liberals dropped by 6.5%, leading them to form a minority government. They won 115 seats, while Conservatives won 121 in the 338-seated House of Commons. While Donald Trump was quick to congratulate Trudeau on his victory, the two leaders have a lot to work on in terms of their relationship, especially after the G7 summit in Quebec last year, when Trump described Trudeau as dishonest. Issues not only of immigration, but of economy and the environment were the main battlegrounds for this election. Now, we can only see how much Trudeau is going to have his arms tied by his coalition partners, even as his image of being globally progressive was damaged by scandals during the election. If Canada is supposed to be the beacon of the global liberal order, then I guess this is an indication of times to come. As Diwali has come and gone, we're left with the last two months of the year. I can only hope for a little more light in this world. On that note, we come to the end of this episode of States of Anarchy. 
If you want to delve deeper into some of the topics we discuss on the podcast, whether it's public policy or foreign policy, I suggest you check out some of the policy courses at the Takshashila Institution. If you have any comments or questions, you can reach out to me at the rate Hamsani H on Twitter and at the rate States of Anarchy on Instagram. You can listen to States of Anarchy not only on the IBM podcast app and website, but also iTunes, Spotify, Castbox, or wherever you get your podcasts. So go subscribe and we'll be back next week. How many times have you caught yourself googling stuff on health and wondering if it's the right information? How many times have you heard different health experts give opposing views which has only left you confused? There are rising cases of cancer, heart, diabetes, stress and autoimmune diseases. Meet the patients and the experts who paved the path of true healing. Join me, Rachna Chachi, cancer nutrition coach and nutritional therapist on Heal and Hearty. I take you through my own journey of recovery from an incurable disease and the journey of so many others who healed only via nutrition and holistic healing. Find the answers you seek for what's good for your health and what's good for your soul. You can listen to us on the IVM podcast app or ivmpodcast.com. Don't forget your date with good health. Are you constantly seeking happiness? Wondering how to make the most of every day? How not to let your inhibitions stop you from achieving your goals? It's now time to get your A game on. It's time to unlock your true potential. Tune in to the empowering series with me Zarina Poonawala to feel empowered in all genres of life. From behavioral skills to management skills, from health to relationships, from mental well-being to emotional well-being, and of course your finances. I've got you covered with these tips and tricks from me Zarina and true life stories from my amazing guests. You're bound to bring your purest to the table. Tune in to the empowering series with Zarina Punawala every Thursday on the IVM podcast app, website or wherever you listen to podcasts.